0: You're listening to Fairweather Friend, a podcast exploring some of the truths behind Australia's climate change denial. I'm your host, Melissa Gray-Ward, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Katan Joshi. Katan has a decade of experience in the renewable energy industry. He's worked across government, corporations, and freelance for a range of NGOs. His writing has appeared in publications such as The Guardian, The Monthly, and many more. Katan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me this morning from your home in Oslo. Your book, Windfall, Unlocking a Fossil-Free Future, is published with New South and just came out this month, September 2020. Congratulations, I'm currently halfway through and it's a great read. I'd love to start our conversation by finding out what led you to write this book.
1: I actually had been wanting to write a book for a long time i've been a I've been a writer on climate and energy for i guess uh about five years and the five years before that I was a data analyst uh, at a wind energy company and you know I guess through those sort of two halves of my career um I kind of always had this desire to write a book because I wanted to i guess document what was happening over that decade and it was a funny feeling reaching the end of the decade and thinking. Uh, it's really. I, I want to tell these stories, but with a purpose. Uh, I want to help the mistakes of the 2010s shape the, I guess, you know, good pathways and, and correct decisions of, of the 2020s. Uh, and so that was why I wanted to write a book, um, but I never had any conception of how I would go about doing that until i uh i did a talk i was actually part of a debate at uh sydney town hall in 2018 um with the ethics center and the topic of the debate was it's too soon to end fossil fuels and i was on the negative so saying you know uh, it's not too soon that we can ditch fossil fuels very quickly uh and the publisher uh sorry the editor at new south publishing um Attended that and spoke to me afterwards and said, you know, if you're interested in in writing a book, we would love to, we would love to help you along that process. And I was just like, yes, absolutely, I would love to write a book. Um, and then the other interesting thing, um, and this sort of ties back to what you're doing, and um, I guess actually some of my own views on this have come from uh, ANU's uh, a few people within ANU science communication, uh, research areas who have sort of informed me on this, but, uh, my, you know, my editor was really like, um, it would be great to have something that looks at the myths around renewable energy and kind of busts them a bit. Um, and my first reaction was a little bit like, ah, oh, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe I want to write something that's a bit more like storytelling focused. And I thought about it a little longer and I actually realized, um, the story sort of is about myths.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, so it, it is, it is still a story, but the story is not, um the story is not uh this is the reality of the situation the story is actually about how a collection of um a collection of deceptions ended up pulling the levers on Australia's climate action over a decade and then the question following that is how do you inoculate people against those uh types of misinformation and inform people about the mechanics of it so they can prepare themselves you know next time a next time an opposition party has a has a climate policy um how do you know when somebody is is uh twisting the science or the engineering behind it uh to misinform you so that that's that's how i how i sort of thought about the book and i think having finally written it you know after a year and a half um i think i sort of did okay on that i think uh having seen feedback from what people say about it you know they seem to be sort of reading it and going I didn't know – they sort of knew that they supported climate action. They knew they supported renewable energy. But um, I hope that when they read the book, it gives them a it gives them a language and a deeper understanding um, not only of the ways that renewable energy is better than they've been led to believe, but also the risks um, and the problems that need to be resolved within this area of climate action over the next decade or so. So I think, you know, when you sort of get to the back end of the book, you might sort of um, – You know, see that that sort of second half of it is like, what do we need to do in the next decade uh, to get it right?
2: Thank you. Yeah, that's really interesting. Love the Ethics Center, by the way. Um, So that's good to know how your book sort of came about. Uh, Yeah, I think that's the challenge for me in exploring this question as well around climate change now in Australia, because on one hand, you've got how do we move from you know this this group of people uh, who are in denial and and into action, right? And they're two kind of separate things that are going on, but that also really need to happen really, really quickly. But I think also what I found reading your book is it's fantastic because it really sets up what fossil fuels are and how you know how renewable energy works, right? For someone like me who maybe doesn't know that much about it and maybe you know ha- has felt a bit inactive on well what can i do as an individual you know in terms of dealing with climate change and climate action so i think what i really loved about the book is that it it does explain some of those things so in what i've read yeah. so far because it can be quite a really dense and overwhelming topic and i think that's where see There's so many sort of subgroups of climate change deniers and maybe there's one group that is maybe like me, millennials, who just feel really overwhelmed and stressed out by the future. (laughs) Um,
1: It is so stressful. Yeah, I I totally relate to that feeling.
2: (laughs) That kind of leads me maybe to my next question, which was. That you know, Following this fire season that we've seen, the University of Canberra conducted what was the Digital News Report 2020, which that was a report that confirmed Australian news consumers still don't believe climate change to be a serious issue. And in fact, when measuring the percentage of climate change deniers, Australians uh, ranked third coming in behind the US and Sweden. So when you were seeing these fires happen, and I remember I saw you sort of put a call out on Twitter to see how people... You know, I live in Berlin. You're also know, how people were perceiving these fires globally. Like, did you think that mm. um, this could be a turning point for ch- climate change denial in Australia? What we saw happen over the Black Summer.
1: Yeah, I, I read that report and it really interested me because I was, I guess, I had, a sort of second, I had second thoughts about the way that they framed that question specifically um and it was because they were talking about climate change denial and i need to go back and revisit um my own thoughts i guess after i read that um but i remember having this sort of vague feeling that i was like i i'm not entirely sure what they are what they're measuring here um but i guess i'll just answer a little bit more generally um and you know i was really curious about this when it happened because uh, as of course like you and i we both live outside of australia yeah. and so first of all, there was the emotional impact of watching a watching a really sort of widespread disaster, um, something which impacted basically everybody in the country in some way. Um, obviously, for some people far more tragically than others. Um, but then there was also the second order effects of um, suddenly Australia featuring in the news um, everywhere. Like, you know, I turn on the state broadcaster here and it's just like footage of Australia constantly. Being somebody who has, um, some experience and knowledge on Australian climate, um, stuff in particular, uh, I had a few journalists here and in a few other sort of European media outlets, um, come to me and say, you know, do you, what do you think is going to happen? You know, do you think this is actually going to change stuff? Um, do you think that Australia and its climate denial habit is going to, is going to change? And I had to really, um, you know how you sort of start to get a little bit defensive of a place that you're critical of? <laughs> yes, I yes. Had to yes. Get, I had I had that instinct, right? Where I was just like, "Hang on a second, you know, we actually need to break this down a little bit further." Um and so w- generally my response to that was, yeah, you have to delineate between the people with the people in the halls of power and just people, right? So, uh, Australians as a citizenry as a group of people, uh very very supportive of, of climate change action right um, and so uh, the protest that happened only a few months before those bushfires um, the number of people out on the streets in Australian cities was unusually high right so if you know you look at um, I went to that same protest march here in Oslo mm. uh, Norway is also a uh, you know fossil fuel country like a, a high high exporting um, responsible for a far greater slice of the problem than the number of, than, you know, relative to the number of people who live in the country, just like mm-hmm. Australia. Um, and the turnout was very small here, um, really, really small. I sort of hint at it in the sort of like latter half of the book, um, but I didn't really want to be a downer, so I didn't go into too much detail. <laughs> but um, it was small here, and Australia was huge. And I think that... Um, uh, the level of like latent public support for climate action is just so high in Australia. And I think that probably what happened is the bushfire crisis didn't push that up. Um, and that's sort of confirmed uh, as a, through a bunch of polls, which is basically people aren't forming their desire to tackle climate change on um, whether or not there are disasters. I think it was probably well known that this is something that was coming for a long time. Hmm. Um, And then the second element, of course, this year is uh, COVID-19. And the question is, do people care less about climate change? Has it sort of been knocked off their priorities? And are they less concerned about climate and more worried about COVID-19? And that is also not true. So actually what has happened is uh, concern for climate change has stayed solid throughout COVID-19 as well. Uh, So it wasn't pushed up by the bushfires. It wasn't pushed down by this other, you know, mostly unrelated pandemic Mm. pandemic. which so which I think is important in its own sense because it shows that there's a bit of solidity uh, behind public views on climate change here. They're sort of not really getting knocked about by crises uh, of many different kinds. And so then you have to consider the people I mentioned earlier, the people in the halls of power, right? Um, so that's politicians, um, people in corporations. Um, you know executives sorry in corporations, um industry lobby groups, uh, you know, the the sort of that constellation. Um and so just to start with politics, of course, uh something that I think hasn't become widely realized or acknowledged in Australia is that the the government has gone backwards mm. on climate change. Now that's not the same as sort of being untouched by a disaster uh to to sit to face a disaster and then to move backwards and say we're going to make things worse um i think is an extremely significant thing um and of course it relates a little bit to california's situation as well yeah. where a whole bunch of wildfires has happened and um actually you know i won't go into it but um you know i've been thinking about it a lot and then um the second part is corporations and industry lobby groups now this is a little bit more nuanced because a lot of the fossil fuel companies in Australia are either already global or um, linked very closely with other large carbon-reliant corporations in the world, right? So the stuff that happens in Australia – they're a little bit protected against it because they tend to have interests overseas. Mm. But I think that there was a non-zero impact of the bushfires on Australia's corporations, but it wasn't that massive, right? Like, so there has been, uh, I guess, like a range of announcements um, by a bunch of different large companies. Um, And I think, you know, a small proportion of those have been taking the problem seriously uh, that is that is a good thing. Um but nowhere near as much as I would have if you had asked me this question in you know January of this year. Yeah. I would have predicted far more corporate change. Um, and unfortunately it hasn't really manifested. And I'll just give you a specific example yeah, um, please. just to sort of paint the picture. So um the New South Wales Minerals Council is the lobby group for coal, basically, in, in New South Wales. Wow. And and um they you know they they, as part of their um COVID-19 recovery plan what they did was they created in their media release they just created a list of coal mines that are either planned or have extensions associated with them and said if you want to recover from COVID-19 all these coal mines are places that you know would be like full of jobs and economic growth and economic benefits and I just saw that and I was like,
2: Mm.
1: my my immediate thought was if the bushfires had had an impact on this organisation, they would not be publishing this press release. Now, of course, you know, the New South Wales Mineral Council um, is not (laughs) not the centre point of like corporate fossil fuels Australia, like they're a little bit more to the right slash extreme. But... I saw that and I was like, okay, this feels like a real moment to me because uh, this is only months after um, devastation that was really unfamiliar, very novel and unusual for Australians. Even though the disaster itself was was familiar, like bushfires, of course, have been happening for a while. The way that it happened was really new, um, and I and I was just so confident at the time that. You know, we wouldn't be seeing press releases of, like, if you want some really quick economic benefits, you can just build a whole bunch of new coal mines in New South Wales. Um, It really sort of blew me a bit, I guess. Um, And then, of course, the other end of the spectrum is, um, uh, you know, companies or industry groups that are actually um, changing their tone a little bit on this. Um, And an example of that would be... um, You know what? Actually, I'm not going to talk about examples because every (laughs) single example comes with 500 caveats and we don't have time for that. I
2: I think that's the challenging (laughs) thing with this topic, right? Because there's just so many um, off, everything's all all interconnected, right? Because you have the media and then you've got, as you say, the politicians and the corporations and how those are all intertwined. Just this week, I, I believe there were plans announced by the Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison to use what was it, maybe $52.9 million worth of public money to frack the Beetlew Basin in the Northern Territory. <laughs> so, you know, it's yeah. just like, wow. And I think that really, to me, like what you're saying with this opportunistic spin in these press releases, maybe with people being fearful about job loss and the fact that they're really using that.
1: Yeah, and and this it speaks to something super important, what you just said, because... Uh... The the reason that Scott Morrison can do that, you know, so soon after such a clear consequence of uh, doing the type of activities that he's proposing uh, is that I don't think that there is a good public understanding about the extraction of fossil fuel, right? So we understand Mm. that it's not right to build a new coal-fired power station and burn coal. Like, there's a general public consensus about that. But if somebody says um, we need to dig up gas, uh, and we need that because, you know, we need to balance renewables on the grid or we need people to heat their homes, um, that, is a, that is a significantly more compelling argument. You know, mm. people have direct relationships with um, methane, right? Like they use
0: yeah.
1: methane to cook and, and they use methane to heat their water and um, uh, it's really seeped quite deeply into people's lives, whereas coal has been a bit of a punchline, mm. you know, for for half a decade. Yeah. So, and this is a real, um, the real challenge of course, is that you have to, (laughs) what the science tells us is that you just can't open new gas fields or build new coal mines or new gas-fired power stations or new coal-fired power stations. Uh, we shouldn't really be manufacturing a single new combustion engine car. Mm. Um, we, it it just, it should be wound down as rapidly as as humanly possible. Um, And that's certainly not, you know, with like cars here in Europe um, and Germany uh, is a really good example of this. Um, uh, They're actually getting bigger and more emissions intensive per vehicle because they're becoming uh, more like four wheel drives and SUVs. And again, you know, that wouldn't happen if without uh, sort of a lack of public awareness about um, the scale and the urgency of a lot of these changes. Um, and then, you know, again, (laughs) I won't get into it because it's a, it's a deep topic, but, um, the question a lot of people like me faces, um, how do you explain or communicate that urgency, um, without also, um, freaking out yourself and, you know, just sort of running around and screaming, which is, which is really how, the default reaction to the type of stuff we read about should be. Um, But you actually just sort of go, okay, well, a lot of this is actually quite feasible. A lot of it's very possible. You just need to um, nudge things in the right direction and get people on board uh, with the fact that actually making a lot of these changes would result in far better outcomes in the short term. Um, Yeah, it's a real challenge. And I, I think actually Scott Morrison's gas thing represents this exact challenge really well. Um, because it is it is actually a little bit hard to explain to somebody why gas is bad. Um, yeah.
2: You do speak about how hard it is to really avoid these if you live in the world, right? Um, <laughs> it, it, it's it's really it's really tricky, and for a lot of us, myself included, you, maybe only just starting to think about that, you know, where that's coming from, what what's powering our lives. Um, Something also that I loved about your book, that it has this sense of, you know, optimism and potential. I, I you know, I have a three-year-old, I think you also have a small child, and so it, it feels like, for me, there's no option but to be hopeful, right, and try and channel energy into making changes, whatever can happen, you know, even though, like we were saying before, it is really stressful. And now seeing, you touched on as well, we look to the states, we're seeing lots of imagery and headlines that is very reminiscent of what we saw in Australia over the summer. It can feel really overwhelming. But, you know, in the opening chapter, you also wrote that the challenge of, um, you know, economically from the COVID-19 pandemic creates a significant potential for new action. What I'm wondering is how do you think that we could use this opportunity because, as you said before, there are people still Australians actually really do care.
1: Yeah, this is a really this is a really good one because uh, struggling with uh, the impacts of COVID nineteen on climate action around the world is really you have to be, you have to just tread so carefully because um, uh, there is a risk that you can forget what the consequences of COVID nineteen have been. Um, which is a loss of human life on a scale that I just don't have the mental machinery to understand, right? Like I just, I see the numbers and I'm just like, okay, I I can't, my brain will never grasp this. But I understand that a world without this pandemic would be the preferable one. Um, And so, but, you know, this is the universe that we're in and we're sort of stuck with it. And so uh, an even worse outcome would be not uh, trying to, pick up the pieces and and use what we're left with to try and resolve other dangers to human health uh, and to human safety. Um, One of which of course is the burning of fossil fuels and the impact that has on us. And so there's kind of two elements uh, to this. One is uh, how elements of human behavior changes thanks to COVID-19. Of course, uh, you know, uh, flights, uh, aviation, you know, movement between countries, uh, is the most very is the most obvious impact of COVID nineteen on an emissions intensive activity, um, you know uh, you and I both live uh, away from Australia but like you know we have people there and uh, I was due to go back um, around the time of book long. this is going to be my one trip you know um, we're we're here in Norway for four years uh, and this is going to be the one you know budgeted <laughs> like carbon budgeted trip to <laughs> back home to Australia and, you know, it's been postponed um, and uh, that's okay. I understand, you know, the reasons why, um, but uh, it was a reminder that as, you know, as somebody, a person who has moved about the world, um, I've done that off the back of uh, an industry that also has impacts on people that I will never meet in my life, you know, um, people vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. And the fact that my flights are only a tiny fraction doesn't really change the moral calculus of whether or not I should be doing it or minimising it. Um, and so I think that everybody starts to think about um, moral calculus in decisions around um, movement and transport and where they live and, uh, you know, <laughs> where their relatives live and where their friends live. Um, it has really just been a, this electricity jolt into – rethinking how we do all these things. And of course, it, the, the chips won't necessarily land um, in the ideal place, but that's OK, too. You know, um, we didn't ask for a pandemic to be the thing that makes us rethink this, but it's what we've got. Um, and so the other thing I want to mention, too, though, is, um, is the impact on uh, the, the, the decisions we make around driving, because unfortunately, it has worked in the opposite direction. People are preferring to uh, take private transport because, of course, there are no strangers inside your car, um, and it's this sealed box with a, a air conditioning, like filtration unit in it. Um, and so, uh, it's um, uh, you know, cars, private cars have always been a way to escape uh, other people and have basically a room-sized box um, powered by fossil fuels that that you just sort of move around with a tank of fossil fuels and a combustion engine in there. Um, And so, uh, unfortunately, there's a big risk of um, uh, the reduction in aviation being offset by um, an increase in driving. Um, And, of course, uh, driving has always been the far bigger slice of emissions uh, than flying. Um, And so, uh, of course, again, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't make every effort to reduce flying and fly as little as we can in our lives. But at the same time. Um, it is just eye-watering to see uh, <laughs> how much um, driving has ticked back up again. In some countries, it's more. Um, it, when you look at relative levels compared to you know, sort of pre-COVID, driving is actually now increased. Um, I think the UK is one of those places. Norway absolutely is definitely one of those places where driving has increased. Um, and that's a real problem. That's going to be easily offsetting reductions in aviation So even though aviation has, like, relative to driving has decreased far more because it was already a small slice, um, then, you know, increased driving is a huge risk. And then the second element, which you mentioned earlier, is the community part of it. Like, um, uh, I think that COVID-19 has made people rethink what it means on a very local level to to be part of a community and to have people around you, very close to you that you know. Um, And I'm thinking a bit more in the climate adaptation sense than the mitigation sense. So when it comes to things like um, unexpected disasters, weather threats, um, even just sort of socioeconomic changes brought on by climate change, uh, it helps so much to just know your neighbours and to know the people around you, because uh, one of the best aspects of disaster preparedness is just resilience, like with your community. Um, People share food, uh, you know, in really in really bad situations you know people should help and the ability to drive um things like that you know it's really important so I think that I think COVID-19 more in the sense that um it will help communities become a bit more resilient to um new crises that that spring up over the next few years um and I think about it less in terms of you know I guess like techno social elements of um trying to reduce emissions because when it comes down to it um a lot of these things were sort of separate from the pandemic world anyway. So um, yeah, that's my answer to that. It's a long answer, but, um, and it's going to get longer, you know, as we get into the next year. Um, but uh, yeah, it's really just, just one more quick general comment on that. Um, actually, yeah, I was just looking at some data on this yesterday uh, and uh, COVID-19 as a whole, as a, as a, phenomenon as a global phenomenon has reduced emissions uh, um, by about 10% Uh, so you know from now uh, into the future the world without COVID-19 has has emissions that are about 10% higher Um, but of course it's not a sustained reduction like this is a this is a temporary reduction which means you know, the way the atmosphere works, of course, is that, um, you know, one analogy is that when it comes to emissions, it's not so much about what the current rate of emissions is, it's actually about what we've put in there. Um, The atmosphere is a bathtub, right? We we sort of, uh, and it has has an overflow point. (laughs) So, um, you know, if you're still pouring water into it, but just for 10 seconds, you um, tip the bucket up so that it's going slower, and then in the next 10 seconds, you tip that bucket back down so it's flowing as quickly as it was before. Um, you can't really consider that to be um, a particularly good thing when it comes to avoiding the overflow. Um, and so, what we're actually seeing now is um, people trying to say, look, you know, uh, it is certainly not enough, but maybe we can take a few of those things and turn them into longer term changes such as only uh, flying on an aeroplane when you absolutely need to, uh, or alternatively, um, uh, I'm trying to think of another good example. I I really can't actually think of another good example because (laughs) it's really the aviation thing that has the most impact on.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's super interesting because when I think about climate change denial, I feel like maybe there can be sort of an apathy on some point from the individual. Cause maybe, you know, there's this argument like, well, how much can individuals versus corporations change, you know, my personal emissions versus what maybe one of the, you know, a, a corporation is creating. But as, as you touched on, like we've just seen with the pandemic uh, it's, it's just no longer a reality to travel around the world in the way I'm thinking in myself personally, mm. you know, being based in Europe for 10 years and, It just really brought that home and for a lot of my friends as well who live around the world who have come, you know, from Australia originally and Australia is just obviously so far away and when I think about also to touch on what you're saying with um, driving and and cars, you know, when I think about the reality that I probably will move back to Australia soon, you know, having a small child, being away from family, um, you know, all these questions around, well, what sort of car do I buy, you know, that how can I live? with those values because i think if i if i avoid you know if i go to protest that's one thing but my personal actions i I do think have to account for something right even if we know that on a personal level you know it's not to the scale of um an aviation company
1: (laughs) there's two there's two elements to that that i've been thinking about recently that i think are pretty interesting um the first of course is is uh community action so this is sort of like halfway between where, where a community of people come together uh, to make a change, but, but you can sort of characterise it as a lifestyle change yeah. for somebody to say, um, you know, uh, actually, I really want to have access to um, uh, a community solar farm, you know, down the road from where I live and the entire street of people, everybody on this street wants to build a community, a small community solar farm with battery storage. And we want to be able to, as a collective, sell power, um, to the city, make money off it instead of losing money by paying power bills. Um, but the city says, "Well, no, we actually don't have the regulatory arrangements in place for you to be able to build that. So get lost." Yeah. Um, and so then they have to come together as a community and say, "Well, we're actually going to take collective action and demand that you that you make these changes and give us the power to to generate energy um, locally." Um, and so. Uh, it's a lifestyle change that you can only achieve through systemic change. Mm. Uh, and so what we're seeing now is actually that a lot of these things bleed into one another. I'll give you another example. I, yeah. I um, uh, started cycling recently here in Oslo. I have not cycled my whole <laughs> life. Um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a...
2: <laughs> cycling in Australia is, uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. And also I'm not a, I'm not an active dude, you know, and I really like sitting in front of the computer and like, Um, you know, this is a hilly hilly city. Um, and so, uh, but I feel fantastic doing it. And the reason I feel fantastic is because I feel safe. Um, the bike lanes are really, really good. And, um, the drivers are amazingly forgiving. Um, even though Mm. I've made some extremely stupid mistakes that I should not be (laughs) forgiven for, um, and that I definitely deserve like a beep and a middle finger, (laughs) um, kind
2: of, <laughs> but there's an awareness <laughs> right they're, they're, they're more yeah exactly
1: and so these are two these are two things one 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 of it is there's a cultural ingrained thing here that that makes drivers nicer to cyclists and the other one is that there is a physical systemic infrastructure change which i I was just talking to a few of the people from the Oslo Greens party to you know get a feel for what they had to do and it was this, like, years-long shit fight uh, where they had to absolutely battle for um, the infrastructure for cycling to be built. Um, wow. And so that's that's extremely significant to me because it shows that, like, I don't really deserve the credit for, des- to, for, for choosing to cycle. Uh, and I, I really <laughs> don't because it wasn't a tough decision for me. I'm not sacrificing anything at all. Um, now, like, I would probably be walking if I was not cycling as well take that into account uh-huh. but, but just considering the general point which is basically that um a lot of lifestyle changes uh, are either difficult or easy and that kind of gets flattened out a bit in the debate between like mm. systemic change and individual lifestyle change uh in that sometimes sacrifices are big and sometimes sacrifices are small um i'll give you an example of the opposite um there was a news article the other day uh, you may have seen me tweeting um, furiously about it, but a guy, uh, a guy, you know, in the COVID-19 pandemic, he's working from home, he's an Australian guy, and he wants to have a commute. You know, he wants to feel the feeling of a commute. So he gets into his car and he drives for 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes in the afternoon uh, to simulate driving to work. Um you may have also seen the um, airlines doing flights to nowhere. Um, this is a phenomenon of um, Qantas is now doing a flight over the Great Barrier Reef uh, where you can fly, you can fly in a plane take off and go look at the Great Barrier Reef in your plane and then land in the same spot and so um,
2: this isn't a simulation though this is an actual. It is like, an
1: actual flight, it's sold out in about, wow. it's sold out in about four minutes, apparently, according to Qantas. Uh, oh. And so, you know, this. so think about the two elements of what's going on here, right? People are deciding to make their lifestyle such that they are the people who go onto a Qantas flight to nowhere. Qantas is also making a decision as a corporation to run that flight right like they're like they're giving people vouchers on that flight too so they when COVID-19 is over they can take more flights uh and so like this is where it starts to get really nuanced because I I sort of I actually struggle to explain this in the book I think as well as I could have but I sort of describe them now as like gravity wells right like these sorts of behavioral traps where, sure, people are making the decision to do these things as, you know, conscious, like, self-aware individuals, but they are also being enticed into it by a series of um, corporate and regulatory decisions. In the case of Qantas, of course, um, there is a lack of regulation about uh, encouraging, like, needless usage of a, of a polluting behavior, um and so you know when it comes to like people like you and me like we want to go home we want to fly home to australia you know and like hug our parents or whatever suddenly we're sort of tarnished with the same um brush as somebody who wants to fly in a plane over the great barrier reef because um the dichotomy of like individualistic versus systemic suddenly starts to become this, like, a bit of a moral battering ram for people engaging in behaviours. Yes. There's, a, there's an old, um, it's actually, I don't, actually don't know how old it is now, but the the principles is something that stuck with me. There was an article about um, uh, alcohol producing companies, right? So, um, uh, uh, what's the word? Like, look at companies, right? Like, the companies yep. that just bottle and sell booze. Um, and generally, this was focusing on spirits and beers, right? Um, and I think this is America-focused too. And what they had yeah. was this chart of breaking down a company's profits by the type of person who consumes their product, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm somebody who has like a beer every couple of nights, or a glass of wine or whatever,
2: mm-hmm. occasionally a
1: gin and tonic, you know, when I'm doing For some writing. Sure. A lot of people fall into that category. That is a large volume of people who fall into the category of they have a small amount of this stuff um, infrequently. Mm -hmm. But because people have a small amount and even though there's a large number, it's actually not the main source of profits for a company that sells alcohol. Mm. Actually, a very large proportion of where they make their money is people who have an addiction to alcohol. So this is people drinking upwards of 10 or more drinks a day. Um, Now, this is something that those companies really, really don't like talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't like talking about how significantly their profits would drop if they took, if they basically resolved alcohol addiction
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, or the systemic factors that result in people turning to alcohol. Uh, yeah. And so, and so, th- like, I just remember reading that and thinking, this is such a perfect parallel. For a company like Qantas, yes. which says, um, we don't just want you to fly once every two years to go see your parents. We want a corporation like a consulting firm to fly their staff to meetings 10 times a day, right? That's, they want, um, what they really want is excess. They want um, they want very sort of poorly thought out usage of their product um, because that, is actually what forms the bulk of their profits, and with and with aviation specifically, uh, business flights that are just entirely avoidable that could be a Zoom call instead. And you know, of course, this is a year when we understood the utility of um, video conferencing. Uh, that is a very significant. I think it's somewhere between sixty to seventy percent of all flights around the world, um, domestic and international. Are these are just dudes having meetings? You know, it's like doing a big manly handshake and, like, and so, yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely, in my work here in years gone by, you know, being part of a team who would fly, you know, from Berlin to Munich for the day with five of us going, you know, to have a client meeting and then fly back end of day. And as you said, we can do this on a video call. <laughs> like, yeah.
1: I, yeah, look, I've done it too, and it's really it's really something um, you, you oh, sort of look back on this. You know, when I, I look back on it, and I'm a little bit like, um, I sort of understand why I didn't think about it. You know, I sort of um, I have a bit of comprehension as to as to I guess you know that's the gravity well that's been put in place by um, deals. You know, between like um, aviation companies and um, you know my former employers or whatever. Who, like they get discounts and. Yeah, so it's actually, I don't know, it's it's tough to um, put all of that into sort of pithy um, language, because it's really, unfortunately, it's just a spectrum, you know, it's this really inter interconnected webbed haze of different factors. Um, and really, when it comes down to it, the best, the best principle um, to just have in the back of your head when you think about this stuff is Um, be charitable and understand how how power works. You understand how um, uh, power is shared between like um, some people have a lot of power and other people have less power and Mm. um, you keep that in the back of your mind and it makes thinking about this stuff a little bit easier
2: that's a really great note to end on i think so i i would also recommend that everyone pick up a copy of your book because i feel like there's so much we could still talk about but maybe the best thing is to do is that they read a copy and then where could they find you online so i'm guessing twitter's maybe one of the best places to check out your work yeah. <laughs> i live
1: on i live on twitter my my handle is katan k-e-t-a-n-j-n zero the number zero at the end um and of course you can also just google my name katan joshi you'll find like my website and um all my other stuff that i do as well so yeah and uh, say hi you know i like hearing, hearing from people
2: fantastic look thank you so much Katan, for your time i really appreciate that
1: fantastic thank you for having me
0: fairweather friend is hosted produced and mixed by me melissa gray ward